Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome. Welcome to fall, real fall. Fall with dry, dead leaves whisking at your ankles, a scurry of small, furred critters, a persistent chill in the air, the promise of dead turkeys dressed for dinner on the far side of mid-month beckons. But come, don't just stand in shivers on the threshold. Come, into the nook, warm your shivers. Yes, yes, shiver. You see it? The new artwork certainly inspires a loving jolt to the spinal column, doesn't it? Hmm? November's art is called Hybrid, and Hybrid is by Argentinian artist Sebastian Cabrol. More on that later. For now, if you can, turn your attention to the scent of apple and cinnamon. Settle. Have a hot mulled cider. Snuggle with a loved one. No, 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 no. No danger. That's... That's just a long cinnamon stick to stir the spices. Well, this is Tales to Terrify. I'm Lawrence Santoro, confessing that, yes, I did pre-prepare last week's show. Last Friday, I was elsewhere. Canada, in general terms. More properly, the environs of Toronto for the World Fantasy Convention. Not Toronto proper, but nearly nearby Toronto. And a grand time was had. A grand time is always had when I can slip the surly bonds of Chicagoland and venture forth into the larger world with Miss Decelia, leave operations here and the firm, sharp paws of Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook, 
who was assisted, of course, by his caregivers, Ms. Tabitha, and Chris and Darlene Bell, who provided opposable thumbs and affectionate scritches for them both. The con? Well, excellent, I'd say. Excellent so far. What do I mean, so far, you ask? Well, the last world fantasy nearly killed me. But that is another tale for another time. This time... I saw and had face time with some old chums and some chums I've known but never met. We forged new chummery at this one and, as mentioned, met folk known only by their tiny icons and frequent comments on Facebook and on the Tales to Terrify forum. Hello again, Sandra O'Dell, on whom I now can put a human face to your electronic one. While there, I touched base with some of the contributors to Tales to Terrify, both the show and to Volume 1. In particular, I shared meet-and-greet duties at the Horror Writers Association table with Miss Nancy Kilpatrick, author, editor, and writer of An Eye for an Eye, which appears in Volume 1 and which will be on Tales to Terrify, the podcast, very soon. I had a chance to interview Nancy, and I'll air the conversation when her story is ready to be heard here in the nook. Excellent, yes. Now, about this month's image. It's striking, yes? Yes. Disturbing. Enigmatic. Painful. I am delighted that we could post this image for this show, because, well, when you hear tonight's tale... You'll know. The artist, as mentioned, is Sebastian Cabrol. He is Argentinian and is principally known as a comic artist. As you can imagine, though, his, his art, comic or not, focuses on the dark side of the universe. Sebastian was born in 1978 in Paraná, and I may or may not be pronouncing that properly, Paraná, Argentina, he says, like everything, his art began when he was little, when he was drawing with his brothers or in school. He attended the art school in his hometown, but left after a year to pursue his own course of training. That was in the year 2000. In the past ten years, he's been published in fanzines and has shown in art exhibitions. Recently, he's worked with Alter Comics Studio. In 2010, they published his graphic adaptation of Robert Bloch's the Feast in the Abbey, in their vampire, zombie, and otherwise undead collection, Relato de no Muertos. Sebastian said that this week's image, hybrid, began, quote, as a very rough sketch that was primarily texture and a symmetrical pattern made of flesh. Often, he says, I have to start with this kind of diffuse idea, then start to work to make it more rational, or transfer that single element into a complete picture. In this case, it resulted in a repulsive organ in the back of a strange creature that could be a female monster or a person changing into something horrible. I don't try to represent already existing mythological creatures, he says. I try to make my own creatures, which usually don't have an explicative background. I see the work more as a manifestation of irrational ideas and thoughts. That we can't explain these ideas doesn't make them worth less. 
Some of my creatures may be benign as well. I don't tend to search for the horrible image or the horror as a goal in itself, but in a general way, the sinister and nocturnal side of things seem more appealing for me than the naive fairy tale, when it is naive, or the too domesticated fantasy. With the image we have now, hybrid, Sebastian says he made the original sketch with mechanical pencil, traced it with India ink, then colored it digitally with a graphic tablet on a PC. And he says, I hope you like it. <laughs> like it. Yes. yes, I do. And you? Well, you'll let us know, won't you? So, thank you again, Sebastian. Now... Ah, yes. Yes, Volume 1 is out. Buy it, please. Later we'll offer up a good reason for you to buy it. But for now, just take my advice and buy, read, and love it. Then get a second and tertiary copy to give during the upcoming Giving Frenzy. And that's all about that for now. End. This week, we'll have Kevin Lucia's bump from October delayed until November offering in his ongoing Horror 101 series. You'll love this one. You really will. And then we've got a story by Weston Oaks from the book. But before all of that, Joe Haldeman. I did run into Joe at the con this last week, and yes, he's ready for you this weekend. I hope you're ready for him. If you're not, and if there are spaces available at this late date, and I'm not quite sure there are, but you could try, and if you're inclined to spend some time in the company of one of the sharpest minds in science fiction, writing, and living today, go to the button on our site, on the Starship Sofa site, wherever buttons for how to write science fiction are found, and press that button, and prepare for Sunday, November 11, 4 p.m., Greenwich Mean Time there. Now, now that the book is out, I promise I will be less talkative, less effusive about my own early life and let the show get on with itself. So, without further autobiographical fuss from me, here is this month's, well, last month's, actually. Here is Kevin Lucia with Horror 101. Kevin? It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning, the rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out, when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe, or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavored to form. His limbs were in proportion, and that I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful, great God! 
His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness, but these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes. This seemed almost the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. Welcome to another installment of Horror 101 with Kevin Lucia here at Tales to Terrify. That, of course, was the pivotal scene of Frankenstein, a modern Prometheus by Mary Shelley, when Victor Frankenstein, for the first time, beholds his creation as it comes to life. Frankenstein will be only one of the novels we'll be looking at this evening, but first, before we do that, I'd like to take a look back and bring us up to speed as what we've covered so far. We have been attempting to chart the history of the horror genre, starting with the early Gothic period, which would be around the 18th century. And as I've said many times before, it's such a wide genre, trying to chart its beginnings and growth will probably be a nearly impossible task, but we should have a lot of fun along the way. Regardless, we started with the early Gothics. We looked at The Castle of Tronto by Horace Walpole. We looked at The Monk by Matthew Lewis. We looked at The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe. And we talked about how those stories primarily took place in castles. They involved haunted and cursed families. Uh, very often, hubris was involved. So characters were defying God's natural order. So because of that, there, there are divine warnings. You know, you are not heeding God. This is what's going to happen to you. Uh, we had persecuted females in both the Castle of Toronto and the Mysteries of Adolfo. We have females who were persecuted by menacing male figures. Uh, we had supernatural phenomena in all three stories. Uh, they were explained away in the Mysteries of Adolfo because that was a, a natural Gothic. They were of divine nature in the monk. And the Castle of Toronto, they were in a hazy, divine kind of, you're being warned by God that you're not behaving in the proper way. And that is the essential texture, if you will, of, of the early Gothic novel in the 18th century. Of course, it's by no means representative of all the Gothic novels, but a large number of them feature these same characteristics. What we're going to do now, over the next several broadcasts, is move to the early 19th century. And in doing so, we're going to look at a period that's been named by many people as the Romantics, the early Romantic Gothics. You know, we're going to be looking at Frankenstein, Melmoth the Wanderer tonight. We're also going to be looking at Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Even though Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde falls in the latter 19th century, we're going to look at that today as well, because all three of these stories move the Gothic novel from just occurring in castles with persecuted females mysterious supernatural happenings to a more nuanced message, if you will, uh, of the tale of the forbidden knowledge. You know, delving into things that man should not delve into. Uh, we have fallen heroes who are reaching for greatness and they suffer hubris, not necessarily because they were arrogant or menacing or cruel, but simply because they're trying to be too great. Uh, we also have with Melmoth the Wanderer, the classic deal with the devil, you know, and, and assuming this pact uh, for, for everlasting life that eventually becomes a burden that uh, Melmoth seeks to foist upon someone else. So let's begin with Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. 
and the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. Both of these stories you could look at as in some ways being tragic stories. We have a hero who, in both Jekyll and Hyde and Frankenstein, are men of science. And for varying reasons, they start investigating things that maybe man should not know. Victor Frankenstein becomes obsessed with delving into the secrets of giving life, whereas Dr. Henry Jekyll becomes obsessed with discovering what is it that separates good and evil inside of us, and is there a way that you can isolate both of these things. What's very interesting in both of these stories that I think sometimes gets diluted and we don't see in the modern adaptations a lot, especially if it's pastiche or, or, or a parody or something like that, is neither of these men are portrayed for us as being evil. They're tragic figures. Both men claim they're doing what they're doing for the good of science, for the betterment of mankind. And there are several points throughout both stories where the narrative states they had a chance to turn away. In fact, I believe it was even in both Frankenstein and in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, there are hints that perhaps a divine power was offering them an out. You can turn away. This is the last warning. Unfortunately, in both stories, they push on. Victor Frankenstein continues to search after the meaning of life, spending his nights in charnel houses and grave robbing. And we just have really, they don't come out and say it. Again, one of the things that, that separates some of these early works, what we see today is that, uh, you know, graphic nature of the prose. They don't say it and give you a lot of gory detail, but just the atmosphere, just the idea that Victor Frankenstein is spending his nights and days surrounded by dead matter is a very unsettling thought. But he spends his night and day searching after this, looking for the key to unlocking life. And then Henry Jekyll begins his chemical experiment, trying to find out how do we separate man's evil side, man's good side. And both times, again, they are offered opportunities to leave off their, their investigations and they choose to move forward. Both stories also give very clear messages about the dangers and the ramifications of delving into these secret areas. Victor, for all intents and purposes, becomes a creator. What he's not prepared for is the fact that he is now responsible for this being. And if there's any part of the novel where Victor becomes a little bit unlikable as a character is when he he's trying to rationalize and, and, and throw all responsibilities upon the monster, forgetting the fact that he was the one, of course, that brought the thing to life to begin with. And not only that, abandons the creature without any type of guidance, any type of instruction, any type of protection. Um, but with the exception of that... For a large part of Frankenstein, you do feel some empathy toward Victor. Uh, he's portrayed for us as a man who is simply overcome by his own quest for greatness. Uh, he's almost destined and fated to fail and to suffer because of his own desire to discover the secrets of life. One thing that's interesting about both stories also is the things that they're searching after 
are the things that come back and injure them and cause them to suffer. So not just ramifications, they delved into forbidden knowledge and bad things happen. The very things they sought to create are the things that come around back at them. We can very easily see how this gets played out down the years, even in the films of the 30s and 50s with the old mad scientist cliche and stereotype. Because, of course, in Frankenstein, the monster, when he eventually realizes that he is not fit for society, that he cannot fit in and be a part of this world, and he's doomed to always be looking from the outside, takes revenge on Victor Frankenstein's family killing the young William, blaming his death on Justine, and then meeting with Frankenstein and threatening, if you do not make me a partner, I will haunt you the rest of your days. I will take it on in your family, of course. He does. So the very thing that Frankenstein creates is the thing that serves to destroy him. Likewise, in The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Mr. Hyde, the alter ego that Jekyll has created accidentally because there's the intimation there what Jekyll's trying to do is separate good from evil so that a man's very good side can be his absolute best and go out and do great things and then free up his evil side to go on and wander and do things on his own as well and hide himself becomes the instrument of destruction uh, and slowly the transformations start taking over Dr. Jekyll without need of the drug that was sparking the transformations to begin with. So once again, his very creation is the thing that starts to overwhelm him and destroy him. And as a sidebar, there's an interesting moral thrust with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, because there, there's also the intimation there that even while Jekyll is saying that his, his aim is to try to separate good from evil within a man so that the good can be unfettered by the evil and to be its very best, there's the intimation there that, of course, by allowing the evil side free reign, this is freeing and uninhibiting and now evil can just go ahead and go and be evil without any of the restraining guilt uh, of course it doesn't work out the way he is hoping there's the idea that he's hoping to split into two beings or two entities but what he ends up having is a transformation within the same body but again that's also stressed in the very beginning unlike in frankenstein because from the while Frankenstein is very much caught up in his investigation, as soon as the creature comes to life, he realizes, what have I done? In the beginning of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Jekyll seems to be, I don't know if we can say enjoying is the correct term, but he sees that Hyde is, in his rationalization, Hyde is performing a very necessary service, allowing the baser elements of Jekyll freedom so that Jekyll can go about and be as good as Jekyll can possibly be. And again, just like in Frankenstein, however, this creation ends up overwhelming Dr. Jekyll by the end of the story when Hyde's persona is able to overwhelm Jekyll and, and affect the change without, without, the, without the use of the drug. 
Not to get sidetracked, but another interesting note of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, especially for me rereading it after all these years, is some of the depictions of Hyde, especially the modern depictions, do the story a little bit of a disservice, once again, from some of its central themes and aims. We are so used to seeing, I think, this portrait of Dr. Jekyll as being this handsome, upright, upstanding citizen, and then our portrait of Hyde being this twisted, depraved, ugly character of a man, when really he's not described as being ugly in the story. Everyone recognizes Hyde's evil simply because there's this air about him, this indefinable wrongness. At some point, they describe his features as being cruel, his manners as being coarse and harsh, but the story never calls him ugly. Everyone recognizes he's evil simply because he is, because there's something wrong, and I thought that was interesting catching that on my reread. So in summation of the two stories, once again we have these two stories especially, classic tales of two men delving into forbidden areas of knowledge. On one hand, I think Victor Frankenstein is easier to feel sympathy for, because, especially because I think, unlike Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Jekyll dies of his own hand. You know, there is that uh, child he tramples in the beginning of the story, and the old man he beats death with the cane, but really the only person who suffers in that story is Jekyll himself when he dies. Um... Although he does have a friend, it's intimated he has a friend who dies of the shock or the, the stress of learning the truth or guessing the truth about him. Frankenstein evokes a lot more empathy and sympathy for Frankenstein because he survives everything until the very end. Frank, the monster, leaves him uh, alive to suffer all of these things. And he has to bear the weight and the guilt for what he's done. Also, Frankenstein is a lot more nuanced simply because the, the, the monster himself is a tragic hero in many ways because he does do evil things. He kills, he murders, he takes revenge. But he has been given a lot yeah, that's, that he has you know no control over. Uh, he likens himself. At some point, he comes across Paradise Lost um, by Milton when he's uh, outside that the, the blind uh, man's home. He's hiding there, watching this family, learning about them, and he associates himself with Lucifer as this fallen hero from Milton's Paradise Lost. So, in many ways, the the monster himself is the ultimate outsider. He is done these things, these terrible things, but this is the hand that fate has dealt him, and there's simply nothing else for him to do. So we do feel some sympathy for him as well. Completing our lineup of works this evening will be Melmoth the Wanderer by Charles Matern, published originally in 1820. This is the classic story of the Faustian bargain, where instead of Unlike Faust, who trades his soul to Mephistopheles for more knowledge and power, Melmoth trades his soul for everlasting life. And he ends up wandering for, for over 150 years, I believe, a figure that pops up through history in these different stories, uh, and he becomes desperate to pass his curse onto someone else so his life can finally end. 
I've saved this story for last, partly because in reading the other two novels, and we're talking about this forbidden knowledge or packs with the devil uh, for things that man should not have, I found that in the sum, even though this novel is hailed as being a very important novel in the development of the horror genre, it didn't match up uh, as strongly uh, to Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I think partly or mostly because, for me anyway, we never quite feel that sympathy or that f- that feeling of loss that we feel with the other characters. The other characters, to a lesser degree, Jekyll, definitely Victor, we can see through the narrative and the story how they've suffered and how... They have almost paid the price for their sins, um, if you want to use the word sin. And we feel sorry for them, at least I do, especially Victor Frankenstein. You feel that sympathy, and in that, you feel that, you experience that classic catharsis, that releasing of emotion. For me, with Melmoth the Wanderer, we don't ever quite get that. Uh, Part of the problem, I think, is the story is so long, and the story is told through these spiraling narratives because Melmoth is this eternal figure that's wandering through history and he's called the Traveler and he pops up in a wedding story and he pops up in this one story where there's a shipwreck and he cruelly laughs at the victims. I think because of this spiraling narrative, for me anyway, any impact or punch Melmoth's plight as a tragic hero is uh, definitely lessened. And I understand here that I'm operating from a certain prejudice, that I'm taking horror and linking it very close to tragedy uh, and insisting on there being that sense of loss or sense of catharsis at the end. But for Melmoth the Wanderer, we have a simple story to me about a guy who has sold his soul for longer life and then realizes that's not necessarily what he wanted, so he's searching for someone to take over this pact for him so he can finally um, give off living. And in my estimation of the other three works, it certainly did not necessarily stack up um, as well. Now, as far as the prose, I was delightfully um, surprised at... Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Of course, this is toward the end of the 19th century. We start moving closer and closer to a more modern form of prose. But Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as a novella was a very entertaining, very quick read. Frankenstein, not necessarily as quick, but still filled with some very lush prose. So, going forward, where do we go from here? We began with the 18th century and the early Gothic novels. Tonight, we have looked at the early 19th century and the romance gothic novels, and we're going to continue looking at those and move into the mid to latter half of the 19th century with the Victorian Victorian gothic novels. Uh, next episode, we can look forward to The House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne and the short work of Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, I believe we can very solidly put Nathaniel Hawthorne in that romantic category. And once again, instead now of castles, we now have the house, the haunted, decursed house. Edgar Allan Poe 
also definitely romantic, but we can say that he works as a nice bridge between the Romantic Gothic period and the Victorian Gothic period. Now, the Victorian Gothic period, as we end the show tonight, is uh, one where we see the Gothic tale really starting to diversify. And I have, maybe somewhat arbitrarily looking at the stories ahead of us, I have somewhat borrowed a page from Stephen King's Dance Macabre, and I have split the Victorian Gothic and the Gothic tale up into three categories, which I'm going to follow through. The first is what I like to call the house, because this is the development, of course, of the Gothic tale in the Gothic uh, castle, because we have the House of the Seven Gables, we have the Turn of the Screw, we have the Haunting, the Woman in Black, Uncle Silas... Now these recurring stories, Bleak House, now these recurring stories that are happening in old manors and houses, which of course continues right up through Lovecraft. Um, We're also going to start looking at the development of the ghost story. We're going to look at M.R. James and Sheridan Le Fanu. And we're also going to start looking at The Beast, uh, we could say that we had a little bit of the beast with Hyde and the monster and Frankenstein, but what we're really looking for is a beast that comes from within, that's either a violation or an abomination of humanity with the vampire, or is a perversion of humanity from the inside in the werewolf. So once again, we're going to look at Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu, and we're going to look at Wagner the werewolf. And so that, that's where we're going to be going for the next couple episodes. And once again, uh, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to comment at the end of this podcast. I have also set up a Facebook group for this series. Um, it's called Horror 101, the exploration of the horror genre. It's basically Facebook backslash study horror. So I'm hoping to provide extended conversation about these um, these stories and episodes, as well as take feedback and suggestions for reading material. Because again, I'm one guy who's trying to read a lot, study a lot, and then offer my findings to you. So if there's any suggestions about stories, that an area that you feel that I haven't addressed, please feel free to, to offer that, and we'll work that into the mix. Uh, once again, I just thank you for listening, and look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you, Kevin. And yes, please, feedback. Kevin needs it. We all need it. Feedback and fellowship. That's the ticket. If you're a regular subscriber to Tales to Terrify, stop by our site, TalesToTerrify.com, and leave word. Let us know. Give us hell. Stroke our egos. You know you want to. Go ahead. And... Thanks again, Kevin. I am really enjoying this excursion into the old, the hoary, and enjoying getting a view of the classic works and the progenitors of our form. So, all right, to keep my promise, we slide right from horror's past to horror's present and yet to be. The fiction we have tonight is from Weston Oaks and is from Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, So, if tonight's tale touches your fancy, or just plain creeps you out, well, you know what to do. There's always that buy button waiting. Here is Weston Oaks' Big Rock Candy Mountain. 
Jethro James tapped the last rock into his crack pipe and smoked it. The memories of his third-grade field trip to the Natural History Museum in Omaha and his first sexual experience with his third cousin Alice at the age of twelve sizzled, popped, and extinguished as the toxic drug took hold of his nervous system and turned him into a human disco ball. But that was okay, because smoking crack was his job. At least it was ever since the nice government man had gotten hold of him. The van roared away, leaving him alone on the street. Old buildings, some reaching seven stories, huddled together and swayed as the warm Santa Ana winds threatened to blow them away. Graffiti covered every surface, as unreadable as the small print on a drug bottle. The smell of urine and garbage mingled to become a recognizable uptown aroma. Cars sped by, driven by wild-eyed suburban drivers, holding the steering wheels with double-handed, white-knuckled grips, afraid of those few who braved the urban walks. Ventura, California, once infamously known as the porn capital of the world, was now just another Los Angeles suburb, where malls and prefab houses sprouted overnight like mushrooms on a shit pile. Who knew that the end of the 1980s meant the decline of hair metal, the Soviet Union, and pornography as a capitalistic way of life? Sure, remnants of all three still existed. Rat still performed in northern Pennsylvanian VFWs to long tables of retired soldiers who remembered partying when Reagan was president. Russian government officials still had their dachas and dreamed of the return of a society where everyone was equal, and they were just a little more equal. The Internet resurrected the world's wet dreams, allowing one-click viewing of anything and everything, in all time zones and any position. And for those who desired a more permanent solution, videos could be rushed to their door in nondescript brown wrappers. But gone were the blockbuster porn movies. Gone were the triple-X theaters with thousand-bulb marquees illuminating the darkness like nightlights for the perverse. Porn in Ventura had been as common as... Corn in Iowa. Porn and corn. Jethro liked the way the two words sounded together. Corn. Porn. Corn. Porn. The porn fields of Iowa. He broke into crack-addled giggles as he imagined Ma and Pa Iowa harvesting fields of Ron Jeremy's. And in the kingdom of Ventura, there was a time when Jethro had been king. He'd starred in 127 movies and videos. He'd had every woman in the industry, at least twice. Men wanted to be him. Women wanted to be done by him. But no more. Crack was now his life. The juicy rush as the raw smoke shot past his gums, terraforming the surface of his lungs, exciting the vessels to turbocharge the drug through his system and into his brain until even his vision sizzled, was better than anything life could give him. Like now, normal sight had been replaced by a fusion of colors, gyrating in three dimensions like an epileptic kaleidoscope. His glistening eyes revealed the world as a chaos of Crayola. A poodle and an elm tree could glow pink as easily as not. Cars shone blue, their reflections in storefront windows bright yellow. Ochre streets ran beneath an umber sky. Purple and violet buildings cast green shadows from an orange sun. Telephone wires and power lines pulsed red like the veins of a great beast. People moved about, their solid colors random by assignment, yet vibrant with their mystery. 
but it was one specific color that Jethro James sought. He swayed, the effects of the drug as it clenched tighter, causing him to stumble. He steadied himself on a golden parking meter, and noticed offhand that the time had expired. After fumbling in his pocket for a moment, he thunked down a dime, then pushed himself away from the meter like a boat casting off. And then he saw it, a single white presence. Dressed as a postman, the Nephilim strode down the sidewalk, as unaware of its stalkers as the surrounding pedestrians were of the true form of the postman. Jethro squinted past the brightness, enough to make out that the Nephilim was a middle-aged black woman. Her forward-leaning gait, combined with the uniform of a postal worker, lent an inculcated officiousness that deterred people from bothering her. Jethro began to giggle. J-Dog, this is asylum. Cut out the chatter. The voice came through his earpiece. Jethro continued to giggle. J-Dog, have you spotted a target? Jethro managed to enunciate, despite his drug-induced jubilance, enough so that they'd know he'd seen one. I think he's crazy, a voice said. That may be, but that crackerhead hasn't failed us yet. Return to asylum, Jethro. And to the others, asylum said, Establish triple canopy surveillance. I want to know everyone she touches and everywhere she goes. So you really think she's one of them? Asked a voice. Definitely. You should get ready. Because if we're lucky, we'll find their hive before nightfall. Then I'll finally get to see one? Just like in the fucking Bible. Jethro had been seeing them for months now. He'd thought they were his own personal versions of pink elephants. He'd never known they were real until the day he was scooped up in the government net. Nearly two dozen of his fellow crackheads were blindfolded and taken to an underground classroom— he reasoned it had to be the abandoned skunk works. Not far from Ventura, the old top-secret military installation was the crucible from which the SR-71 spy plane had been born. Twenty-one wooden chairs filled the room. Twenty faced forward, in four rows of five. A single empty chair had been placed in the front of the classroom, facing the rear. Upon each of the twenty chairs sat an addict in different stages of withdrawal, They'd been held in separate cells for at least forty-eight hours, so some were already shaking uncontrollably, yellow bile seeping from between cracked lips as they herked and jerked against the chains that bound them. Jethro felt his teeth growing. His heart beat tom-toms through his eyes. He'd been focusing on the smell of his index finger for an hour, and swore it reminded him of cotton candy. Glancing at the others in the room depressed Jethro. Part of him wanted to be away from these rejects, gaunt faces, malnourished bodies, ruined and rank clothing. But then another, less kind part of his Samaritan psyche reminded him that he looked just like them. When he was high, he could trick himself into believing. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Giving that everything was cool, but he wasn't high now. He was sober and ashamed to be among them. He began to notice a sulfur smell. It took a few moments, but he finally detected the narrow ribbon of brimstone circling the empty chair in the front. The smell and the brimstone reminded him of a movie he'd done with Dirk Dong and Mulva Darling, where he and Dirk had been traveling exorcists and Mulva was a poor, misunderstood succubus. She'd been trapped in a circle of brimstone and it was up to them to save her soul. And, as was the norm in his chosen profession, salvation came from fucking. Front, back, top, bottom, and sideways. Before he could return to the mystery of the brimstone, his attention was stolen when a fight broke out between a Filipino he-she and a man Jethro recognized as having once been a fellow actor. Sean was his first name, but he'd gone by the name Snake Foreskin, his oddly thin and impossibly long member propelling him through celluloid hits like Escape from New Jackoff City and Escape from Lost Ambulance. Sean had been what they'd termed a geek in the industry. For the most part, he'd done intros and extros, like on the set of Alibaba and the Forty Knees. The film had opened with him blowing on a flute like a snake charmer, his penis rising as a nearly invisible monofilament line pulled it into the air, as if it were alive and hypnotized by the music. But now the he-she had snake's head in both hands, bouncing it off the floor as he-she screamed over and over, "'You no touchy me!' Government men in black jumpsuits, helmets with face shields and rubber gloves, rushed into the room and separated the pair. Within moments, they'd rearranged the addicts, so that Snake and his adversary sat at opposite ends of the room, breathing heavily and sweat dripping from their brows. They looked pathetic. They needed some of their dignity back. They needed some crack. No sooner had the thought crossed his mind when six government stooges wearing orange hazmat suits entered the room— Two carried trays, like Holocaust butlers. The remaining four held submachine guns and arrayed themselves in the corners, their reason for being stunningly clear. Move, and you die. Welcome to the Skunk Works, a voice came from a speaker in the ceiling. You all have been invited to participate in a brand new program to save the world. The proclamation was met with giggles and a few groans, but nothing more. My assistants will be passing out crack pipes for your smoking pleasure. Please accept them in an orderly manner. No pushing or shoving will be allowed. Suddenly all eyes snapped to the men with trays as they began to pass out small unadorned pipes. 
Each was accepted by greedy, shaking hands. Many of the men wept openly, effusive with gratitude as they cupped the pipes in their hands. A hair-lipped Hispanic with wiry arms and collapsed veins barked his impatience as he leapt past an old war vet. Two of the orange-clad government men opened fire, three round bursts stitching the man in place. He spun, then collapsed, his arms and legs folding in upon themselves like those of a dead spider. Please stay in your seats. The calm voice was pure Mr. Rogers. We won't allow disorder. Jethro glanced around, recognizing the barely contained glee in everyone's eyes as their dreams came true. All their midnight prayers and begging had finally delivered them to what they so desperately craved. His eyes lingered once more on the empty chair amidst the brimstone circle. Was it for one of them? What did one have to do to sit there? A sticky net of melancholy entrapped him as he realized how far he'd traveled from his life in Iowa. He could have stayed with his family. He could have been part of a heritage first ground into the soil two hundred years ago. But instead he'd followed a dream fueled by rock music, porn mags, and impossibly long-legged girls. He'd found happiness and fame for a time between their legs— but when the industry had crumbled beneath the enlightenment of the 1990s, he'd nowhere to go. He couldn't go home. For him, Iowa was a clean place, a place where his family had grown for generations, a place where people rarely even kissed in public, much less... He didn't want to finish the thought. At least he had the Big Rock Candy Mountain. Unspoiled and unpopulated, it was his heaven, and a place that even his sordid history could not spoil. Two orange-clad men entered the room from the door at the rear and drugged the body away. A third mopped up the blood trail, backing out the door so that the only evidence that something had gone wrong was the empty seat. When the drug tray came to Jethro, he tried to be cool, but he couldn't stop his hands from shaking with anticipation. Putting the pipe to his lips, he inhaled deeply, tasting the unlit crystal resting in the bowl as he hummed a string of song— there's a lake of gin we can both jump in, and the handouts grow on bushes. In just a moment, we will be passing out lighters. Please take your time and enjoy the product. Thank you for your cooperation. The addicts fumbled with the lighters when they came, their excitement making the simple procedure complex beyond quantum physical standards. Still, they managed to light their pipes. The flare of red, then blue, then acrid smoke shot through their lungs. Almost as quickly, they sagged in their desks, legs askew, backs arching and relaxing as the drug pumped through their systems. Eyes rolled madly, sometimes nothing but white. When it became Jethro's turn, he couldn't control his desperation as he grabbed the blue plastic lighter and snapped it once, twice, then sizzle, snap, Crackle, pop goes the weasel, the sweet, mad taste of chemical that took him to the Big Rock Candy Mountain, traded for a memory of his mother's first smile that split to infinity. He sagged as his muscles jumped and twitched. He let his hand rest on the desk, the pipe loosely grasped, in case there might be another welfare rock on the way. His mind drifted through fields of cigarette trees, soda water fountains and lemonade springs. He soared above a lake of stew and streams of alcohol. His skin felt both hot and cold as his blood sizzled through his veins. 
his head lolled on his neck. He felt drool trickle free, but didn't have the will to control it. He allowed his gaze to coast across the room. This time, when he looked at the chair in the front, it wasn't empty. Sitting with its hands clasped on its naked lap was a gaunt creature, part man, part something indescribable. White skin was blotched with grays, greens, and blues, cancerous and tumorous as they bulged and sank with disease. Breasts sagged, brown chewed nipples folding upon themselves, knobbed legs crossed beneath the chair at the ankles, long clawed feet kept carefully inside the circle. The skin of the face was pulled so tight that the cheekbones and the brow ridges seemed ready to tear through. Yellow cataract eyes glared back at him as a mouth of postulant gums and slimy teeth opened. Will you die for my sins? it asked. Jethro jerked back in his desk, his legs scrambling beneath as they fought for purchase. He slammed his eyes shut and brought the pipe up to his mouth once more and inhaled. Please make it go away. Please make it go. But instead, the view shifted as his mind's snap-crackle popped the last of the crack, taking him to his big rock candy mountain. But instead of the peaceful sounds of the brooks and the birds and the bees, a great voice boomed across the land, causing crevices to wrench open and rocks to avalanche down the faces of the cliffs. Water boiled and forests burst into flame. Even as the air became so oppressive and heavy that the creatures of the mountain fell where they stood... Lift up your banner upon the high mountain. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have called my mighty ones for my anger. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, with my weapons of indignation, to destroy the whole land. Jethro scrambled to his feet, breaking the desk apart. He backed away, his arms in front of his eyes, terrified at what he might further see but the creature merely grinned as it stood to its full height, easily that of the tallest man. "'Will you die for my sins?' it asked again. Jethro fell to the ground, his head slamming hard against the tile. Volcanoes erupted along the spine of his big rock candy mountain, spewing effluvium into the air. Screams of animals and insects joined with his own as his heaven was destroyed.' Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them, and they shall be amazed one at another, as their faces turn to flame. Three days passed before he was allowed to leave his hospital bed. Nothing was physically wrong with him. Only his mind had been affected. And even now, after a dozen therapeutic doses of crack and some minor explanations, his imagination felt scoured and raw. Finally, he'd been able to return to his big rock candy mountain, and it showed none of the devastation that the creature had heaped upon it. They didn't go into great detail, but it seemed that he'd been the only one to pass the test. The others were released. He was given a new set of clothes— jeans, shirt, and shoes. Then they took him into a conference room where two men waited. His mouth felt sandblasted. His body had spent time rammed in a compactor on the back of a trash truck. He really didn't feel much like talking to anyone, 
All he wanted was to get back in bed and smoke a little more. This is Mr. Lachance. He's a cosmologist. The government man was the same one who'd spoken to him before, and was straight out of a B-movie. All that was missing were the dark glasses. He sells makeup? No, that's a cosmetologist. A cosmologist studies the physical universe as it relates to time and space. And associated phenomenon, Mr. Lachance added. He wore jeans, loafers, and a tweed jacket, over a t-shirt with the words, I honk for angels. Some of us study planets, some study the relativity of distorted space, others, like me, discourse in celestial existence as outlined in certain historical texts. What? Part of my studies involves angelic transmigration, in this case cherubim and nephilim. Wait, you study angels? As in white robes, flaming swords, and booming voices? Big rock candy mountain turning Vesuvius? He shook the memory away and reminded himself that it had never happened, could never have happened. Turning to Mr. Jones, has this guy been smoking my crack? No, Mr. James, he's very serious. You should listen to him. The government man knocked on the table. You know what he's talking about. Jethro glared at him for a moment, wondering exactly how much the you know meant. Fine, but look at it from my point of view. You pick me up, put me in a room full of addicts, feed me crack with enough kick to break my teeth, then reward me like a lucky monkey for being the only one to see a special kind of pink elephant, in this case some shriveled and dying thing. Only he wasn't my pink elephant. Instead, he was some angel you'd captured and managed to hold in a circle of brimstone. Angels? Are you kidding me? The government man shook his head, knocked on the table to get Jethro's attention, then pointed to some words he'd written on a piece of paper. Isaiah 13. As if Jethro knew what that meant. Lachance cleared his throat and frowned down his nose. Not mere angels, but Nephilim and cherubim. Whatever. Jethro cursed, tearing his gaze away from the paper. "'Is he always this belligerent?' Lachance asked. "'We don't know. This is the first time he's been sober since after the test.' "'This is the real me,' Jethro stood and postured, pumping his pelvis towards them. "'This is me in all my faded glory, and to think that women used to beg me to fuck them. "'Thankfully, we don't want the real you. We like you just fine on crack.' Mr. Lachance lowered his glasses and peered over the tops of them. "'You're very special, Mr. James. We've only found sixteen others like you in twenty years of testing. "'If I'm so special, where's my fix?' The government man knocked on the table once more, bringing Jethro's attention back to the paper. Isaiah 13. "'You'll get that soon enough,' Mr. Lachance said. "'We just want you to understand why we're doing this.' "'Why?' Do I have to sign something? Well, yes, actually. A non-disclosure agreement and a release for death or damage. Standard stuff. These might be standard to you, Sparky, but not for me. So you want me to sign papers stating that I'll never talk about it, and if I die, I'll never expect you to pay me, and if I live but I'm just a little fucked up, I'll not come to you for a little fix-up. Does that about cover it? Yep. What do I get out of it? All the crack you want, free of charge, the government man said, for the rest of your life. 
A thousand smart-assed responses crystallized into an explosion of pure joy as Jethro's need overwhelmed his concern. He swooned at the possibility of not having to panhandle, crying as each quarter and dime propelled him towards his salvation wonderland. Not having to dumpster dive. Not having to steal food because the money was already spent on a rock. God, how far he'd fallen. Free crack was like free sex. He'd had the latter. Now they wanted to supply the former. Free of charge? He couldn't keep the shake from his voice. USDA prime choice crack cocaine. Jethro gritted his teeth and fought the urge to giggle. He dug his nails into the palms of his hands to keep them from shaking. He needed to concentrate. He needed a few minutes of clarity, because part of him was reminded that there were no free lunches. He might be getting free drugs, but there'd be a price to pay down the line. What do I have to do for this? He licked his lips and pushed his greasy bangs out of his eyes. I mean, I know you want me to see things for you, but it would help if I understood the big picture. Mr. Lachance glanced at Jones, who shrugged and looked away. He'll be stoned anyway, not that it will matter. Maybe it'll help, Lachance offered. This was an opportunity for Jethro. He'd been locked in his crack spiral for nearly a decade, with no possibilities past the next fix. Now he had a horizon. Something to look forward to. Something to look past. Not that he knew what was on the other side, but, but he at least knew that he could get close enough to look. And then a small part of him hoped that he'd find a way back to Iowa, where he could once again walk through the fields of golden corn and smell his mother's rhubarb pie. So he listened as the government doctor explained about the Nephilim that had been chained to the chair, invisible to all but him. About the Nephilim who'd been creating hives across America, for what purpose no one really knew for sure, but the government treated it like a military maneuver. Pre-positioning was the word Lachance used over and over. Creating hives of humans to serve each cherub, the Nephilim were biblical royalty. Lachance had quoted Genesis. The Nephilim were upon the earth in those days, and thereafter too, those sons of the gods who cohabitated with the daughters of the Adam, and they bore children unto them. They were the mighty ones of eternity, the people of the Shem. No one ever really paid attention to that particular part of the Bible, because it didn't fit neatly into Adam and Eve being the first. But the Bible says specifically that these creatures were on the earth before Adam, before Eve. Before crack, Jethro couldn't help but think. Lachance explained about the cherubs. Not the fat little babies of television, but powerful celestial beings who'd been in the presence of God. Cherubs like the angel who prevented Abraham from sacrificing his son, Isaac, or the angel that wrestled with Jacob, or the angel who led the Israelites under Moses out of the wilderness. Each hive is ruled by a cherub. They're here for a reason. If you look at history as we've done, each appearance resulted in a turning point for mankind. Lachance shook his head as he snapped shut the Bible. We can't let that happen. We're not prepared for a turning point in the history of the world. Not here, not now. We're quite happy where it is. That's where you come in. To stop an angelic invasion? What if this was the end? Judgment Day? What if God was pre-positioning his forces, preparing them to battle evil? Could he stop it? Did he want to? Trust an addict to rationalize. I know I shouldn't ask this, but how do I know this isn't some crazy elaborate hoax? 
He licked his teeth, almost able to taste his next fix. How do I know you're not fucking with me? The government man jabbed his finger at the paper one last time. Isaiah 13. Then he tossed him a Bible. Read this, then get back to me if you have any questions. San Remos Props and Wardrobe. Such a benign sign. The place seemed so common, so Iowa, so corn. If they only knew, it was all porn inside. Back in the 80s, San Remos had been the number one provider of sexual devices and wardrobe. If they didn't have it, they could build it. Nothing too big or too small. Outrageous and ingenious were slick partners under this roof. Closed now for 20 years, the building was both an odd choice and a perfect hiding place. The interior glimmered with golden rays that seemed to originate from everywhere and nowhere, dulling the outlines of objects and rendering them to blur. He couldn't discern distance, objective relevance skewed by the warping of space, straight lines curving to abstract. His eyes began to burn, unable to withstand the constant assault of color. His gut twisted. His equilibrium faltered, sending him tripping into the top of a railing that followed a set of stairs down into the basement. He felt like he was in a funhouse without the fun. Comet trails of color shot away from objects as his gaze moved on, searching for the cherub, for the figure of pure golden light, for Nephilim, or for any sign of a hive. Instead, blue men and women huddled against the walls, whispering and firing neon-green liquids into their veins, becoming purple as the liquid transformed them. The farther into the building he went, the more purple people he saw, and the more able he was to digest the colors. In the center of the room, hidden by a low row of boxes, lay a crisscross of purple bodies, helter-skelter pickup sticks of the drugged. J-Dog, come in, the voice hissed in his ear. Jethro spied stairs rising to the second floor against the back wall. Should he take them, or return to the front and go down? Before he could decide, a yellow man skipped down the stairs and stopped in front of him. Lanky blonde hair with a bodybuilder's bare chest, he leaned in and kissed Jethro on the cheek, then whispered, Would you die for our sins? Then he was gone, hopscotch skipping across the bodies and out the front door. The smell of crack and his body odor lingered around Jethro, then fell away. Would you die for our sins? There it was again, like the Nephilim at the skunk works. Whose sins? Then he remembered the guy, from his direct-to-video days before the porn market completely capitulated to the Internet. Rod. That was his name. Just Rod. Like Shaq or Cher. And for him... Rod fit perfectly, thirteen inches of pure stud. Was Jethro to save all the out-of-work porn stars? From the fluffers to the grips, was he to be their savior? Jesus died for the world's sins. Whose sins was Jethro James supposed to die for? J-Dog, are you there? Come in, J-Dog. Jethro ascended. The top of the stairs opened into a room that took up the entire second story. Light from floor to ceiling windows cascaded through the shadows in the floating moats, enough for him to see that the floor was empty. But the room wasn't. His breath caught as the enormity of the vision crystallized. In the name of God, he cried. J-Dog, is that you? What's going on? I told you we couldn't trust him. Shut it. He's doing fine. 
Jethro ignored the voices and let his gaze sweep past the dozens of hanging bodies. All yellow like Rod, these men had been hung by the neck and were dead. Evenly spaced around the room, the bodies swung gently in different directions, the ropes tied to pipes running along the ceiling, the combined weight of the bodies causing the bodies to bob. The ropes dug wickedly into the flesh around the dead men's necks, stretching them to almost twice their length. Eyes stared blank and bulging. Some had vomited. Others had bit their tongues. Jethro began making his way through the bodies, sidestepping rather than touching, as they bobbed and swayed across his path. He stopped at a hanged man near the middle of the room. He knew this one. They'd shared a pipe once, behind the 7-Eleven on 4th Street. As he gazed at the yellow face, the yellow lips began to move as the body twisted to face him. Would you die for our sins, Jethro? He leapt backwards, intersecting several bodies, sending them spinning violently away in pendulum arcs. He fell, landing on his back, cracking his elbows on the hard wood floor. When he looked again at the face, it was composed in death, yellow lips pressed together with grim rictus. There's no way he could have spoken. Jethro giggled. He scooted away from the spinning bodies and found a place to stand. At the far edge of the room was a stepladder and an empty space. Sidestepping the bodies, he managed to make it there without touching any of them. Above the ladder was an empty hangman's noose. Jethro didn't need to be a genius to figure out what was expected of him. His left hand went to his neck as he backed away. They wanted him, but they couldn't have him. Now, unconcerned about touching the bodies, he ran to the stairs. Looking back, among the bodies swaying back and forth, rebounding off each other, was Snake Foreskin. Would you die for my sins? No, shouted Jethro. No way in hell. He hustled down the stairs, ran across the room, and found the stairs to the basement. Looking back, he saw nothing but purple people. No yellow men, no Nephilim. So why was he so scared? Suddenly, a shadow flew across the room and enveloped one of the purple people. Seconds later, the shadow returned to a space near the ceiling, the purple person gone. J-Dog, come in. Jethro peered down into the darkness at the bottom of the stairs. This is J-Dog. He couldn't keep his voice from trembling. J-Dog, where have you been? Things are a little weird in here. What do you mean? Yellow men and purple people eaters. Bobbing for crackheads on the second floor. Snake Foreskin wants me to bob. What the hell is he saying? J-Dog, you okay? Jethro gulped. Okay is a crackhead savior ought to be, I think. Shut up, Bill. I don't want to hear it. Then to Jethro. J-Dog, keep in touch. We're counting on you. I bet you are. With that, he descended the stairs. When he reached the bottom, he had no choice but to turn left, then a short hallway and a metal door. He grasped the knob, hesitated, and asked himself why he was doing this. He'd read Isaiah 13 and found it to be exactly what had transpired in his mind when he'd first viewed the Nephilim in the chair. According to Mr. Jones, everyone capable of seeing the Nephilim had had the same experience. How odd that they'd all shared something written thousands of years ago, having to do with the destruction of the world. Why were the angels here? If you were to believe the government men, it was to destroy the earth. Jethro didn't even need to think about it. 
There were a million things he hated about the world, but his memory of Iowa and the way things had been before he left were most precious to him. Who was he doing it for? Everyone he'd left behind. He couldn't go home, but he could ensure there was a home to return to, that there was a home for everyone else. He popped one last rock into his crack pipe and smoked it. As the acrid smoke coursed through his lungs, the memory of a car wreck at age twenty and a romantic dinner with Stephanie at the El Dorado Steaks and Morisco's Buffet zapped from existence. That's okay. It was a fair trade for bravery. He'd never really liked Stephanie anyway. The knob turned easily, so he opened it and stepped through. Light blinded him, as at least a hundred Nephilim stood around the walls of the immense room, each glowing impossible white. He raised a hand to shield his eyes, and made out a great mound of boxes in the center of an otherwise empty floor. Atop this, darkness reigned, blotting out the ceiling in a roiling cloud of blacks and greys. He let the door shut behind him. The click echoed in the room. He winced, ready for an attack, but none came. Then he noticed that the Nephilim were facing the walls, like bad children being punished. The sound of a bell striking reverberated through the room, causing Jethro to cover his ears. The sound came again and drove him to his knees. The sound came once more, and the Nephilim began swaying back and forth, moaning in a monotone dissonance. The cloud of blackness melted away, revealing a golden figure resting upon a throne pieced together from sexual devices. Jethro could not move. The power of the cherub's presence was so great that he couldn't even take his eyes off the angelic creature. The cherub had the face and body of a baby, but was as large as a grown man. It shimmered with golden light. The eyes shone red and glared at him with what he could only describe as a loving fascination. Whatever courage the crack had granted fled in the face of this Old Testament being. Jethro tried to look away. He tried to avert his gaze, but he was completely powerless. A thin scream escaped his mouth. The cherub spoke, its alien voice almost out of octave range. The man-sized hand rose, and a chubby finger pointed at him. The cherub spoke again, this time screeching like an owl. The hundred Nephilim spun on their heels. Each now faced Jethro. Their moaning ceased. Goosebumps popped along his arms. He trembled uncontrollably. He wanted to run. He didn't want to be here anymore. Who cared about Iowa? Who cared about the Big Rock Candy Mountain? The transmission could barely make it through, but that wireless connection to reality helped him as much as a platoon of infantry. He managed to avert his eyes, at once lessening the power of the cherub. Asylum? He could barely control the giggles in his voice. Asylum, this is J-Dog. I have the target in sight. J-Dog, say again, last... The cherub spoke again, the sound like glass grinding in an open wound. Jethro grit his teeth. Dear God, how could this be an angel? How could this represent the hope of a benign God? Would you die for our sins? asked the hundred Nephilim with one voice. He couldn't take it any longer. What had been held at bay burst through the paralyzation. Why? he screamed. Why do you ask me this? Why is everyone asking me this? Because you have a choice. 
die for our sins, or be punished for your own. The words came from the mouths of the Nephilim as one voice. Clearly the cherub's voice wasn't meant for human ears. What are your sins? We didn't care enough. The statement trailed off into sadness. I don't understand. We let you do what you wanted to do. We were negligent. What are our sins? You forgot grace. Grace? The bond between the Creator and the created. Jethro had never thought about it before, and in that realization understood the problem. Respect, the Nephilim said, something he'd rarely cared about. Who respected a porn star? Who respected a crackhead? He didn't. You have none. Yeah, he lowered his head. So. Hey, dog, give us a sign. What the... You've come to kill us. Jethro looked up at the mischievous smile on the cherub's face. There are no secrets here. We know, the Nephilim continued, the choice is yours. It always has been. What choice do I have? He asked, spreading his arms. The choice between hell on earth or the big rock candy mountain. But what about Iowa? What about those you left behind? Yes, I owe them. You owe them nothing. Your sugar-coated memory conveniently forgot the reasons you'd left. Your father, Uncle Jerry, Billy Jimison. You've turned it into a big rock candy mountain. Uncle Jerry. A memory of alcohol, hurried breathing, a struggle, and the roughness of denim against Jethro's naked buttocks. Billy Jimison, who'd waited for him behind the mailboxes with a two-by-four. And his father, who'd... Nothing that was is as it was. How could I have forgotten? He gasped. Why'd I have to remember? A small, tired part of him pointed out that the memories had been hidden for a reason. Snap, crackle, pop, mimicked all hundred Nephilim. Jethro wiped tears away from his cheeks with his palms. Yeah, that's it. Snap, crackle, pop. The choice is yours. Why do I have to choose? Respect. Grace. It took a moment, but Jethro finally nodded, and as he did, his shoulders sagged in defeat. Yeah, I understand. He turned his back on the cherub and the Nephilim. He trudged up the stairs, past the purple people, past the pickup stick bodies, up the next flight of stairs, and through the hanging yellow men. The stepladder was where he'd left it. He climbed up the bottom two rungs, draped the noose around his neck, and tightened it. The yellow man nearest him opened his eyes. Blackened, rotting orbs appraised him. Would you die for our sins? Hey, dog, where the fuck are you? Is it in there? Yes, he said to both the Nephilim and the government man. Jethro stepped up one more rung, then shoved off. The stepladder fell one way, and his body the other. When he reached the end of the rope, his neck snapped. The crack followed by hundreds of automatic weapons as they opened fire on the floor below. A second, a minute, 
an hour or an epoch later, Jethro found himself standing in the open door of a train, chug-chugging towards an immense purple candy mountain. Lemonade springs bubbled through the rocks. Streams of alcohol meandered into a lake of ginger ale. Birds and bees buzzed the lollipop trees. Respect. Grace. Yeah, he'd finally understood. The government men wanted to kill the cherub to save the earth. The cherubs wanted humanity to die to save themselves. Everyone had their own reasons to kill everyone else. What they'd all forgotten was selflessness. The train slowed as it came to the last stop. Looking at the big rock candy mountain before him, Jethro knew he'd made the right decision. After all, if he hadn't, he'd never have ended up at the heaven he'd created for himself so long ago. He stepped off the train onto a cool mint sidewalk, his heart filled with the wonder of discovery and the awe of a wish fulfilled. Little boy turned porn star, turned crackhead, turned rock candy angel. Thanks for that, Wes. Weston Oaks began writing professionally in 1997, and in 2005, he won the Bram Stoker Award for his first novel, Scarecrow Gods. He's also been a finalist in the short fiction, long fiction, and collection categories for the Stoker. His co-written collection of short stories titled Appalachian Galapagos was nominated for the Pushcart Prize for Short Fiction. Wes has had work appear in comic books, professional writing guides, magazines, anthologies, as well as in his novels such as Empire of Salt, Blood Ocean, and his most recent, Seal Team 666, out November 27 from St. Martin's Press. Wes holds a Bachelor of Arts in American Literature from Excelsior College and a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing from National University. He travels extensively to book signings and conventions where he's been gross-out contest head bouncer, toastmaster, and guest of honor. He is a frequent speaker at libraries and schools. Uh, He has been an adjunct faculty member for Cochise Community College and runs the online guerrilla fiction writing workshop. Big Rock Candy Mountain was read for us tonight by Peter Cavell. Peter is a writer voice actor and musician. His short fiction has recently appeared in Night to Dawn and Sideshow Fables. Peter has had plays produced recently in Boston, San Antonio, and Toronto, where he lives with his wife and his ferocious cat. He is the musical director at the Second City Training Center in Toronto. News of his adventures, along with free downloads of his work, can be found at his website, www.petercavell.com. And, well, there we are. As promised, very little of Lawrence Santoro's early delvings in the dark tonight. Nevertheless, I hope Weston Oak's Big Rock Candy Mountain will spark a deep urge in you to run home and buy Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. I hope, too, that 
As you make your weekly stroll through the night town this week on the way home, you'll realize that you really would like to spend some time with Joe Haldeman on November 11. You think you'll do that, too? Hmm? Sure you do. All right. I hope you've, well, yes, enjoyed this evening's lesson and sermon, and perhaps you will think about it on your way home. So, up and doing, children of the night. Wrap yourselves in dreams and tiny terrors. The walk home will be dark and hopefully quiet, and beautiful in that way that late night walks in deep fall can be. The lake tonight is still, flat, calm, just a shimmer of light. The leaves still hush at your feet. The temperature is still above freezing. It's hovering, waiting. Along your way, and after climbing your dark stairs, and after creeping into your dark bed, and pulling up the covers, and feeling your own warmth wash back over you, I hope, you'll be able to purge some of the images raised by tonight's tale. They are pretty dark, huh? Yeah. I hope, too, you'll be able, well, momentarily, anyway, to wash the memory of hybrid from your heart. Hybrid will remain on our wall back here in the nook for, for the month. I don't know. I keep going back to it, looking, thinking. What in the world? <laughs> what in the afterworld is it? Ah, oh, well. We would not want the thoughts of deep eternity to blacken what should be one of Fall's simple, pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcast. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The finest genre fiction. 
You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.